You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. I was made aware that something was happening because several staff members had come into my office to ask why there were multiple police cars and um, emergency vehicles out on Market Street, which is the road right in front of the courthouse. So of course, looking out my window and seeing that the road was shut off, I, I knew this was something going on pretty big. Suddenly, he was there in the lobby screaming. In a matter of seconds, he barged through the doors of the Chester County Justice Center. Brandishing a knife, he raced past the metal detectors. He slashed at Deputy Kevin Bro. Shots were fired. Deputy Bro was injured. And just like that, 34-year-old Curtis Smith, plagued by his own demons, lay dying on the floor. Shooting incidents have reached epidemic levels in a country racked with fear. As court professionals, we hope never to be involved in a shooting. But if one occurs, are we prepared? The incident lasted seconds, but the shock to courthouse staff and the unsuspecting public could go on and on. How do we support staff who may be traumatized? Skilled training kept the situation contained, but the threat of events escalating is always present. How can we keep vigilant against a danger that, hopefully, will never come? Finally, what advice do those who have been through this ordeal have for the rest of us? I'm Pete Kiefer. And welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Patricia Norwood Foden, Court Administrator for Pennsylvania's 15th Judicial District in Chester County. Welcome, Tricia. Hi, Pete. Thank you for having me today. Also on the podcast is Lieutenant Adam Sibley of the Chester County Sheriff's Office. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Pete. From Las Vegas, we have Lance Wilson retired clerk for the United States District Court for the District of Las Vegas. Lance, great to have you on with us today. Thank you, Pete. Finally, we have Deputy U.S. Marshal Addison Freeman with the Charlotte, North Carolina Joint Terrorism Task Force. Addison, I appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Adam, let me start with you. Can you walk us through the events of that day in August 2015? So on August 25th, 2015, at approximately 11.50 a.m., a male subject entered the Chester County Justice Center. As soon as the subject had entered through the front door, he yelled out, he brandished a knife, and he charged at two of the deputies who were posted at our entrance security checkpoint. The subject lunged forward with the knife, he stabbed one of our deputies, and was almost simultaneously shot by the second deputy. The entire incident from the moment the male entered the Justice Center until the male was laying on the floor lasted approximately three seconds. Employees in the area who heard the gunshots followed the concepts of run, hide, fight. They fled the area and sheltered in offices and hallways. The entire lobby immediately became a crime scene, and our agency was assisted by members of the Chester County Detective's Office and Westchester Borough Police Department. Our injured deputy was transported to a local hospital for his injuries to his hand, sustained as a result of the incident, and the male subject received immediate medical attention from our deputies who successfully revived the male, but he later died at the hospital. Tricia, give us the court administrator's perspective. 
Tell us who did you talk to, where did you go, and what did you do throughout that day? The incident actually occurred on the first floor, you know, in our lobby area. Uh, the Chester County Justice Center is seven stories tall, and I was in my office on, this, on the fourth floor, did not hear the gunfire. Uh, I was made aware that something was happening because um, several staff members had come into my office to ask why there were multiple police cars and um, emergency vehicles out on the mark out on Market Street, which is the road right in front of the courthouse. You know, so of course, looking out my window and seeing that the road was shut off, I I knew this was you know something something going on pretty big. So I instructed my staff to stay put because at that point, you know, we weren't sure what we were dealing with. But I shortly received a phone call from our director of adult probation, whose office was located on the second floor. And he called to tell me that his staff had sheltered in place because they had heard gunfire. But at that point, the uh, sheriff personnel had already been around to the to the offices off of that lobby area to say, you know, that there was an incident and that they were to just to stay put, remain in their offices. So, so I knew that the situation was contained, and I immediately then headed upstairs to talk mm-hmm. to our president judge uh, just to get some information and to find out exactly, you know, what we were dealing with. Restrictions were limited throughout the building. And of course, from there, you know, things happened really quickly. So, you know, there was a lot of going on, a lot of information coming in and a lot of, you know, phone calls were being made. And and we did actually have a challenging situation because we had some trials that were happening upstairs in the upper floors with jurors who were already impaneled. And the president judge had made the decision to keep those court trials going because the situation was contained. But there was a lot of information being spread out to the community that the the courthouse was actually closed and uh, the building was closed to the public. But those of us on the upper floors who were not evacuated at that point kept court operations going that day. And it was, you know, it was a challenging day. And we, we were very lucky that we had plans in action, you know, at that point to, to kind of keep things going um, in the, in the event of an emergency. So did you inform the jurors at their break or on lunch of what was going on? The judges had indicated to the jurors that there was an incident that had taken place, but they had dealt really well with the public or with the jurors and the public that was actually there for those proceedings, keeping them in the loop of what was going on. But there there were, again, restrictions in moving throughout the building. And actually, there was a directive that if you left the building for any reason, you were not allowed to go back inside the building. So for those folks that wanted to go out and get lunch or they needed to run to their car for any reason, they were told once you leave the building, you can't come back out. So uh, I think from that perspective, things were challenging, but the judges did a really good job keeping the folks that were there for the proceedings contained. Lance. In January 2010, Johnny Lee Wicks in Las Vegas opened fire in a tragic incident involving your court. Describe to us what happened that day. Sure. So it was actually January 4th, 2010, a Monday morning. It was the first day back after the New Year's holiday. And as in true, we met in many courthouses and other businesses. People were off the whole week. Before that, so everyone's back in their offices getting geared up for what they thought would be a normal day and week. 7 a.m. that morning, about three miles away from our uh, relatively new courthouse, Johnny Wicks set his apartment on fire, so he had no intention of ever making it back. Uh, He started his hour-long walk towards downtown Las Vegas. He was wearing a trench coat 
with a shotgun tucked inside. At 8 a.m., Mr. Wicks opened the front door to the courthouse, raised his shotgun, and started firing. The court security officers engaged him right away. Several shots were fired within the atrium. Stanley Cooper, one of our amazing court security officers, was shot and killed uh, right behind the magnetometers. Wicks never made it into the courthouse. He retreated out on the plaza of the courthouse. A U.S. Marshal who was on the second floor heard the shots, came down a fire stairs, engaged him uh, right outside the front entrance. Uh, the Marshal was hit in the shoulder and side. Uh, fortunately, he survived, but he was down and wounded. Then Mr. Wicks made it across Las Vegas Boulevard, a, a major thoroughfare, and anywhere from 30 to 40 shots were fired. There was a gunfight across Las Vegas Boulevard. He was lying behind some bushes uh, next to an old historic school where he eventually was killed. I was in my office um, on the first floor right behind our atrium, which is a three-story granite round space sort of visualize a silo and you know the sound of a shotgun going off in that space a couple of times is a sound I won't forget. So what do you do when a gunfight spills out onto a busy city street? Well I mean fortunately or unfortunately depending how you look at it it hadn't happened before so you know these as much as we I and mean, we'll get into some of the you know emergency plans we had a little bit later but you know you don't you don't plan for something like this, and in any planning, you have to look at all contingencies. Rumors started right away that there could be more shooters, and that's why you know we were in a lockdown for several hours until the Metropolitan Police Department, their SWAT team came in and evacuated the building floor by floor. Lance, what was the most difficult aspect of that day for you as clerk of court? You know the initial feeling is feeling helpless. I was alone in my office, which is behind a secure door. Unfortunately, it's on the other side of the hallway from the main clerk's office, so I couldn't be with the rest of my staff. And back then, the, the main protocol was shelter in place. You know, it wasn't, you know, run, uh, hide, and fight like it is now. So as much as I, my initial instinct was go out and try to help, all I had on my belt was a cell phone. And, you know, the worst thing, the, the, the last thing the police need is someone like me out there trying to help without a weapon. So I, I think feeling helpless uh, for those first several hours was the hardest part. Tricia, what was your biggest challenge that day? I believe the communication with the employees and letting them know what actually was happening proved to be the biggest challenge. In our security training, you know, we've done a fairly good job explaining that during critical incident, the likelihood of a general announcement is fairly slim. You know, and as Adam had said in his introduction, we were talking just seconds um, from the time that the gentleman had walked into the courtroom and from, you know, kind of 
you know, all of the things that had happened after that, you know, it was literally seconds. So there's really obviously not going to be enough time to make an announcement. But, you know, we encourage employees to be aware of their sound surroundings and to pay attention and that they need to take responsibility, you know, to keep them safe and to take immediate action, you know, without waiting for an official instruction. But that being said, most of our employees who were sheltering in place at that time, they were receiving most of their information from media sources on their cell phones or they were getting text messages from, you know, worried family members who were watching the news and, and of course, the news were already covering the fact that there was, you know, a shooting at the courthouse. So that was probably our biggest challenge at that, at that point was the fact that we had not been able to give official information yet to our employees who were sheltering in place and there was a lot of misinformation floating around on the, from the media, um, from family members, you know, well-meaning family members. And, and that is definitely something that we took very seriously in the days and months to follow. Addison, you've had extensive experience handling active shooter situations. Now, they are different from other types of crises that courthouse staff might face. What do courthouse staff and the public need to remember in situations like this? One of the main points, it's going to be chaos on the probably the first probably couple hours because there's going to be a lot of unknown information. There's going to be a lot of misinformation. Uh, it could be reported as one shooter. It could be reported as two. And, of course, law enforcement has to take all of the necessary steps and procedures to ensure that there's not. Additionally, that it's going to take time. It obviously depends on how big the courthouse is. Is it two stories? Is it six stories? Is it under construction? And just realize that stuff is happening, even though they may not see it, but they just have to be patient and wait for law enforcement and uh, additional first responders to show up. Tricia, did your court have an emergency action plan in place prior to the incident? Yes, we did, Pete. You know, at the time of our incident, we had previously developed an employee security training program, and that included the shelter-in-place training. When the shooting incident occurred, you know, all of the departments in the Justice Center had participated in this training. You know, the overall plan had included, you know, in addition to the face-to-face shelter-in-place training, you know, we provided education materials on all different types of security incidents, such as like bomb scares, you know, suspicious packages, you know, how to work the panic buttons, you know, and reporting those threats through our statewide judicial reporting system. So I think in our in our situation, in our county, we definitely had some tools in place for the employees to cope with. I mean, I'm sure Adam would be able to tell you more about the law enforcement side of things, which in Chester County, we're very lucky that we have a fantastic sheriff program who are highly trained in these incidents. But we felt it was very important to make sure that our employees knew what to do when faced with these types of critical situations. Lance, how about your court? Did you have an emergency action plan? Yes, uh, all federal courts are required to have an occupant emergency plan and a COOP, continuity of operations plan. And the occupant emergency plan is really dealing for things like, you know, fire drill, uh, bomb threat, and, and there are active shooter protocols are included in that. The COOP is really if the courthouse is closed for, you know, more than a couple of days, you know, where are you going to go? Uh, to work, how are you going to communicate, how are you going to process cases. But really, in our case, since the courthouse was open the next day, which was something the judges made it very clear to the police they wanted to have happen. Now, obviously, we would have respected the police if they hadn't been able to process the large crime scene uh, in that amount of time. But our our occupant emergency plan uh, did cover the shelter-in-place protocols. Adam? 
Law enforcement is obviously going to have a different agenda than court staff in these situations. What's the biggest difference, and how should law enforcement, court staff, and the public work together? Simply put, you know, the biggest difference is going to be the expectations of each entity. So the expectation of law enforcement personnel is that they're, they will be trained and focused on stopping the threat in order to gain control over that incident as quickly as possible. However, the expectation of our civilian court staff and the general public is that they will run, hide, and if necessary, fight to protect themselves. Although there are civilians who are capable of stopping an active threat, the general public as a whole is not mentally prepared for or trained to seek out and intentionally injure or kill another human being, even in the case of an active threat. If the opposite were true, we probably wouldn't need active threat training. The best approach for law enforcement, court staff, and the public to work together is ensuring that we just have a better understanding of what our roles are and what responsibilities we have in those roles. Our training in Chester County, similar to most programs, it includes an overview of the law enforcement response and our procedures in the sheriff's office, and also instructions on how to react when uh, law enforcement arrives on scene. Our primary objective in our civilian training is to ensure that our court staff, civilians understand their options and have an opportunity to mentally prepare themselves so they don't feel helpless. Again, with those differences in roles, uh, the most disturbing phrases I've heard from survivors of other active threat incidents is that they felt like they were just waiting for their turn to die. I think for anybody in a position of leadership, and especially in law enforcement, something that's a phrase that we should keep ever present as a reminder of why we should be focused on preparedness and some of the differences, again, between those expectations. Violent incidents within courthouses are a nightmare for court staff, for law enforcement, and for the public. We'll learn more about how to prepare after this short break. This is Tina Madison, Deputy Court Administrator in Tucson, Arizona. As an administrator, I encounter a variety of challenges and opportunities in the day-to-day -day operations, as well as when I'm envisioning the future of our court. One of the things I've come to appreciate about my membership with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management, is the abundance of resources the association provides to those who work in a court environment. On their website, NACOM offers podcasts, like the one you're listening to, and recorded webinars, as well as educational modules for members. Also on the site, you will find The Core, which provides an in-depth look at the competencies needed in the court management profession, as well as NACOM publications, which are offered to members for free. Be sure to check out all that NACOM has to offer. If you are not a member, please consider joining NACOM today. You can do so by clicking the Join Us button on the NACOM website at nacomnet.org. If you are a member, I strongly encourage you to get more involved by joining a NACOM committee. Find committee descriptions and meeting schedules on NACOM's website. Then simply join a committee call. You'll be glad you did. We're back with Tricia Norwood Foden, Lieutenant Adam Sibley, Lance Wilson, and Deputy Marshal Addison Friedman talking about shooting incidents inside courthouses. Tricia, did your court staff practice shelter-in-place training? We had the shelter-in-place training. We practiced shelter-in-place training. We provided the information. We showed videos. And it was actually demonstrated, unfortunately, with our incident that uh, the employees 
paid attention. They were engaged and I think every, the feedback that I had received from the employees that participated in the shelter-in-place training, they, they really appreciated the fact that they knew what to do when, when the time came. I was glad to hear that we had given those tools to the employees so that they were able to respond appropriately. Lance, what sort of training did your staff go through to prepare for this type of incident? Well, we had some training, but unfortunately, in hindsight, it wasn't as well thought out as Tricia just summarized. You know, once a year, we would have a total review of our emergency plans, but that was in our large jury assembly room, and it was not made mandatory. So we went over everything. I think staff had a good feel for what to do, but we did not have a physical drill. Obviously, twice a year, we had a fire drill about evacuating the building, but the active shooter you know, protocols are totally different. And unless and until you actually go through it, figure out where you're going to shelter in place, make sure the public address system works, things like that, you know, we, we learned a lot after the fact. And then we started doing the actual drills where we you know, pretended there was an, a shooter in the building. Addison, most of us have seen that excellent video by the Department of Homeland Security, Run, Hide, Fight. Give us some background regarding the decision to change from shelter-in-place to run, hide, fight. I think the, the shift came as a result of people needing to also see how themselves would deal with the situation. The idea of being able to shelter in place may not necessarily always be the first option, uh, especially if you encounter the shooter at the, at a front entrance or out on the street or, uh, as we've seen this past weekend, out and about shopping or at a nightclub. So in that scenario, I think, you know, getting the general public to understand that you may have to deal with the threat itself and wait for law enforcement to, to show up. So Run, Hide, Fight focuses on an individual's response to an incident. But what should a good overall emergency response plan contain? Yeah, probably one of the main things to start out with is designated roles and responsibilities for all of the occupants in the building. In addition to that, having updated information as far as employees, uh, we know people change, they promote, they retire. So making sure that whoever assumes the new leadership position knows that as well as everybody else in the, each office. And I definitely think making sure everybody is aware of it. So if Interns come on board or new hires, making sure that they're aware of the OEP with the understanding that obviously this could happen at any time. So making that probably one of the priorities is for new hires um, is, you know, on that onboarding process to make them aware of what it is and what their expectation is. Lance and Tricia, what proved to be the most help to you that day? Our our chief judge was on a plane, uh, I think flying back to Nevada from Washington, D.C., but our occupant emergency plan made it very clear that, you know, the next judge with the most seniority was in charge and, and he was in the building. And, you know, while we were separated by seven floors and both locked down, we were on the phone, you know, probably every, every 20 minutes communicating about what should be done next. So, you know, if you don't have those roles clarified, the, the, the last thing you want is four or five people thinking they're in charge. I think from an employee standpoint, I would say the fact that the employees knew how to respond 
um, you know, what to do when they hear gunfire, and they did not become part of the incident by, you know, sticking their heads out into the hallways to see what was really going on. We stress that point in training that we don't want the employees to be a part of the incident. We don't want to take time and attention of the sheriff away to protect individuals when something's going on. And I had numerous employees provide feedback following the incident that they were really grateful that they had that training ahead of time because they knew what to do to keep safe. And, you know, the feedback from the sheriffs was that they did not have to deal with employees. Literally, after the incident happened, there was not an employee to be found in the entire lobby area because everybody knew where to go or what to do. So I thought that was the most beneficial part of the day, at least from you know the employee standpoint. Lance, how did you communicate with staff? How did you communicate with the public? And how did you deal with the media? Sure, good, good questions. As I think Tricia mentioned earlier, you know, communication in these situations is the largest challenge after you making sure everyone's safe. Um, one thing we learned is that our public address system, the only way to access that was in the fire command room, which in most courthouses is close to the front entrance outside the front door. So there was no way with that having been, a, you know, a gunfight and an active shooting situation for anyone to access that to make an announcement throughout the whole building. Uh, we did have our, our phone system where there's the ability to broadcast announcements, which I did. However, people were sheltering in place in rooms where there was no phone. So communication was the largest challenge. Of course, after that, it took a, just a few months to modify our public address system so the U.S. Marshals could also make an announcement from their command center uh, within the second floor of the building. Public, I didn't have, because the Metropolitan Police you know, SWAT team came in and pretty much took over the, the crime scene because it was also out on a public boulevard, communicating with the public was really the job of the police department. I had a few calls from the media. One, while we were actually in a lockdown situation, I am normally much more polite with the media, but I believe I just said, you know, I, they were trying to find out. I think they had the shooter's name, trying to find out if he had any pending cases in our court. And I, I think I uh, probably not as tactfully as I normally would have said it just wasn't the appropriate time for me to talk with them. Tricia, how did you handle communications? From a personal standpoint, our office was actually busy handling phone calls from worried family members who were serving as jurors that day because we had several jurors impaneled and of course they're not permitted to bring their cell phones with them into jury service. Uh, so we, we were trying to do our best to make sure that those family members knew that the jurors were safe and that no jurors were involved in the incident. But that was, uh, you know, that was definitely information that we pass along to our local court security committee to, you know, to talk about that communication aspect. Uh, and we did look at how we communicate emergency information with the employees, with the public, you know, designating roles, who, you know, who is supposed to be doing what following an incident. And, and today we do have the ability to send emergency alerts through text. You know, we send alerts to the desktops that pop up automatically. And, and we also now have incorporated, you know, emergency alerts that actually come through our voice over IP phone. So, you know, we really did look at the situation from a, a security committee 
standpoint to identify what went well, what didn't go well, and we took appropriate action to make sure that we are better prepared. God forbid it happens again. Lance, how did staff fare during and after the crisis? What sort of assistance were you able to provide? You know, we all lost a friend in Stanley Cooper, so people were grieving. One of my employees was actually coming through the magnetometers when the shooting started, and one of the CSOs threw it to the side, and when Stanley was hit, he landed right next to her. This woman is a woman of incredible strength, and she said several times after that, she had the honor of praying with Stanley before he passed away. So we're, we're dealing with you know, the emotional aspects of uh, one employee going through that very up close and everyone else. Many people saw the blood and his shoes, which were left as we were evacuated. First thing the next morning, well, probably that afternoon from home, after I made it home later in the day, I contacted uh, Washington and we have a, the, all the federal courts have an employee assistance program. If I recall correctly, the response was, well, maybe we can send one person in, but, you know, da, da, da. And I just said, I'm going to do this on my own. And if I have to ask uh, forgiveness rather than permission, I will do that. The next day, we had two employee assistance counselors in the building. One did a large group session. Another was there an available individual session. The other thing that, that I just can't uh, state strongly enough is the chief judge who had made it back into town that evening came down to the clerk's office, held a staff meeting. He was in tears about losing Stanley and showing some of that emotion went a long way. And for him to take the time to come down when still dealing with the police and, and with the aftermath of the shooting. So I think getting the counseling that's available no matter how you do it, it is critical in these situations. Tricia, how did your staff hold up both during and after the crisis? You know, I'm really proud of how our staff reacted. As I said before, in training, you know, one of the things that we cover in training is to make sure that, you know, not only are they trying to keep themselves safe, but you know, to make sure you're accounting for the visitors and the public that are in their offices. And, you know, I heard a whole bunch of stories following the incident specifically about what they did in those seconds after the incident. One office knew that there was a young family out applying for passport. Um, you know, young, young children were there. They went, got them, took them back to their secured location when they sheltered in place. You know, another department like physically grabbed one of the cleaning staff who was walking through the hallway just to make sure that that person was brought back into their location. So I really think our staff demonstrated some level-headedness, some cool, you know, heads definitely prevailed. And our HR department, they immediately deployed information about coping to the employees afterwards. They sent information about crisis counselors. These counselors were available to, to them if they needed to talk to somebody. So I think there was definitely a, a lot of support that was offered to the staff in the days immediately following the incident. But you know, more importantly, I think we as a committee, a, a security committee that looks at these types of in, in, you know, incidents, you know, we listened to the concerns of the employees after, after the event and took their suggestions and comments back to the committee for us to really look and plan. And we use that feedback, you know, as part of our strategic planning, you know, when we're looking at the direction of our committee. So, but overall, I, I give two thumbs up to the employees of Chester County. They really did, uh, they really did a great job. 
during some really difficult circumstances. Adam and Addison, what is the most difficult challenge for law enforcement when dealing with a courthouse tragedy? I'd like to touch on two challenges. Uh, you know, I think during the incident itself, itself, ensuring that there isn't a secondary threat. Recent history provides us with numerous examples of actors who've utilized improvised explosives and several examples where actors worked in tandem with additional persons in the initial incident. And I think this reality combined with the confusion, the chaos of the initial incident, uh, makes it difficult to ensure that the threat has in fact been stopped, that we've actually identified that threat and we've contained it. Uh, I know even in our incident, uh, even though it was over in three seconds, uh, the chaos and confusion in the initial onset actually led to a report that there was an active shooter in a separate county court facility. Uh, although it was quickly determined that there was no threat at that location, there was still an armed law enforcement presence that responded to that location as well. And we had to sort that out. So I, I think that's one of them. And I would just touch on, you know, specific to courthouses from a law enforcement perspective, uh, and I'm sure many court administrators would share this as well is the continuity of operations. During our incident, in the aftermath, we're working on maintaining a crime scene, but we were also providing security for two jury trials and also a wedding that took place in the uh, courtroom on the uh, upper floors. And so we had to identify a different entrance and set up an alternate security checkpoint. So there were some other considerations that we had to prepare for and then react to in that respect as well. Can I comment on something Adam just said? Absolutely. Go ahead, Lance. Adam mentioned remote locations, and this is something that was the least thing on my mind as we were going through this day and even the next day. But, you know, we have a couple of remote locations. The employees in those locations were actually more upset with the lack of communication that they received than the employees who actually went through the shooting. The employees who went through the shooting had sort of a bonding of having gone through a traumatic event going through it together, even though communication could have been better. The employees at 400 miles away at different sites felt as though there could have been a threat to them as well, which is true. You know, you never know if it's a, there are more shooters. And the last thing I thought about was reaching out to them. I don't know, even in hindsight, that it would have had the time to do that. But they were very, uh, they were more angry than the employees actually went through the shooting. But they felt they were left out of uh, the communication chain. That's a great observation, Lance, and I don't know if that has ever come up before. Addison, what do you think is the most difficult challenge for law enforcement? For law enforcement as a whole, you may be entering a building that you're not familiar with and trying to get direction of where everybody could be in what office and what courtroom is going to be a challenge. Trying to use common terminology as to third floor as opposed to they're in the southeast corner. Getting people to be in unison, as far as something as simple as that would make stuff a lot easier to deal with, as well as being able to gain access to those rooms. You may not always necessarily have somebody from that courthouse with law enforcement as they're clearing the building. That is the goal, but that may not necessarily happen. So being able to navigate an area that you're not familiar with. So in saying that, you know, if you do have a courthouse and you have a relationship with the police department or fire department or the medics, Invite them in to just walk the courthouse every so often, you know, when they get a new class and you get them familiar with your location. And that would help expedite them clearing the, the building and getting aid to anybody that may need it. Let's circle back to the question I asked at the start of the episode. What sort of advice would you give to court administrators from around the country based on your experience? More precisely, 
What is the one thing courts do not do now that they should start doing? Addison? I think the the biggest thing would be to train uh, and train often. I know everybody has busy schedules and we all have a lot of things to do, but taking care of the employees and, and the community itself is part of that. And I think if you're able to train, it helps make everybody feel a little bit more comfortable if something were to happen, what the response is going to be. Adam? I would say to establish personal and professional working relationships between all of the county agencies and nearby jurisdictions ahead of time. Uh, if you identify those roles during a meeting, a training, exercise, or even just a minor incident, that that should carry over to a major incident. And it allows for a more cohesive response when you know who's going to be there, who's going to be in charge, and who should be involved. Lance? In addition to the communications being a challenge with our shooting, because of the nature of the shooting, it was also outside the courthouse on, on a busy street, the Metropolitan Police Department came in with their SWAT team and totally took over the evacuation of the building. And our U.S. Marshals, who were intimately familiar with the entire building, you know, were relatively small. They knew all the employees by name, by face, were not permitted to accompany the SWAT team. So the evacuation, in my opinion, took much longer. They started on the eighth floor and worked their way down. Again, by the time they made to my office, when I opened the door for them, guns drawn, pointed right at me until I showed them my ID. Whereas if there had been a deputy marshal with them, they would have said, Lance Wilson, he's okay. And also, even the way they evacuated us, they were taking us to, to a school on the other side of the courthouse, not the one where Wicks was, was shot. They took us through the front atrium where the shooting took place, where there was a door at the back of the courthouse that would have been much more of a direct line to the evacuation site. Now, after that, of course, our marshals had several discussions with the police department. They now have a memorandum of understanding that, God forbid, should something like this happen again, the U.S. Marshals would work hand in hand with the local law enforcement. But that's one uh, takeaway I would stress to every court look into to make sure they have those agreements in place. Tricia? I really do feel training is the key. You know, if court leadership is not providing security training to employees now, and, and I'm not just talking about fire drills, you know, or building evacuations, um, but I'm actually talking about training employees on personal safety and security, specifically how to shelter in place, you know, make security training a priority. Chester County, all new employees get a security lesson during new employee orientation. I mean, so on, on you know, from the first day of their employment with our county, we send the message that, you know, security is a priority. You know, we care about the safety of our employees. For those jurisdictions that have court and non-court departments in the building, and I'm sure many of your listeners have multiple branches of government sharing one building, you know, make sure that those folks are also included in any kind of security training program that you have. You know, and security training does not need to be a big expense. So, you know, we as court administrators, you know, we're always looking at the bottom line and budgets, you know, but there are plenty of things that we can do as court administrators that just, you know, are not, you know, does not take a lot of time 
time and expense. You know, there are some great videos on YouTube, not only for run, hide, fight, lock, block, and silence, but start simple, you know, such as do your employees know where the panic buttons are in their offices? That came up as part of our security committee work. You know, we had employees that didn't even know where their security buttons were. So we provided information about where they're located and how to work them. You know, so there are some some simple things that corporate, you know, leaders can do that I think will have a massive impact on their work environment. And, you know, I really do think that court leadership needs to make security training a priority. I want to thank Tricia, Adam, Lance, and Addison for joining us today and sharing the lessons that they learned from the events that they had to confront. All of us can learn from what they've had to deal with, and we can all admire your courage. It is a sad truth that we must all be ready to deal with this awful possibility. Tricia, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Pete. Lance, I'm grateful for you sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Pete. Adam, thank you for your insights. Thank you, Pete. Addison, I appreciate your advice. Thank you for having me, Pete. Now, before we sign off, let's answer some listener questions. We had two listeners, Andra Motika from Tacoma and Sherry Lust from King County, who both live in Washington State. They wrote in questions about our July episode on ransomware. Here to ask those questions are Andra and Sherry, and here to respond is a guest from our July episode, Stephen Nevels from Jackson County, Georgia. Andra, what's your question? Thanks, Peter. Were computers that were not specifically part of the court network affected? For example, maybe a judicial officer was doing work at home using his or her personal computer while accessing the court database. Having off-site backup mitigates the damage, but doesn't the malware also affect the backup if the backup is attached to the main computer? Stephen, what are your thoughts? We didn't really have any computers off-site that were personal computers or anything like that that were affected. Most of ours were in the network of Jackson County, which the Sheriff's Department was included in that network. And they definitely had computers involved, and they had computers that were hit by the malware over at the jail. Having off-site backup definitely is the key to preventing a lot of this happening as far as a malware virus or attacking your system. We did not have an off-site backup, and that was one of our main problems. That's the reason why we eventually had to pay the ransom. But it is highly recommended that you don't have backup. You can always have a backup to your main system, and main network system, but you definitely need it away from your main network, off-site somewhere protected, at least one location. If, I know in Florida, most of those courts have that are dealing with state government have them at two or three locations off-site. So it does make a difference. It gets you, even if you get hit by a malware attack, you can get back up on your feet and not have to pay the ransom and get you know, rebuild and back up a lot faster than you can. Uh, we're still in the process right now of having to go through and filter a lot of our um, emails and things that we get sent to us, even though they're coming from state government and other governments around, you know, the counties around us are in our judicial circuit, but everything's having to be screened and looked at before we can accept some of the emails coming in. We don't, if they don't recognize it as being a, a friendly email, I should say, but the clerk's authority in Georgia has a system backup called the vault, and we were not connected to that either. Our clerk was not connected to that, so it caused a lot of problems. Sherry, what's your question? 
Thank you, Peter. My question would be, how can a court stay current with all the changing threats and concerns out there? Stephen? There are a lot of cybersecurity folks with the FBI and Homeland Security that offer actually a free analysis of your system. They'll come in and do that for you. Sometimes there's a, some minimum charges involved according to what all they need to do. But I highly recommend you get your your whole network systems. If you have more than one, get them a, a, analyzed and looked at by the cybersecurity experts. Is there anything you would have done differently once you became aware of the attack? Well, the only thing that we could have, um, we should have done, I think, and uh, our IT directors learned a lesson from it, is that should have probably uh, shut down. When they were starting to get some signs that we were getting someone was fishing into our system, it was not being looked at enough every day to make sure you weren't getting phishing emails, malware attempts, and um, that I highly recommend that um, you would do. But the other thing I recommend, if you can't afford to, to establish a cybersecurity expert you know, position, a full-time position, I highly recommend you contract with a, with a group. The FBI and Homeland Security and the Mark Landenberg's group, are, you can, I mean, they've got connections where you can get the right folks to come in and you can contract on an annual basis or we just posted ours. We're hiring a full-time cybersecurity expert and that individual will be separate from our, will not be underneath our network, our IT director network administrator. That person will be separate so they can do all their expert analysis and reviews when they do their job without having to deal with the regular IT daily needs. That's the other thing I would recommend is you provide training to your staff on the basic things of what to look for, for phishing emails, that they can do the training on that. And we're getting ready to do our training also and make sure employees are more aware what to look for so they can not open a document, not open an attachment. Uh, they can immediately contact the IT uh, office and uh, the cybersecurity person or uh, notify them and let them take it from there. My thanks to Andra and Sherry for submitting their questions and to Stephen for responding. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. If you have a question about this or any of the podcast episodes, email us at clapodcast, that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. In most cases, we'll answer your question at the end of a future podcast. I'm Pete Kiefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.